You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 99. The next episode, the big 100, will be on April 6th, so there'll be a slightly longer break this time, but we've got something really special planned for you. Stay tuned to hear more about it or check out our website, descentmagazine.org, to learn more about this upcoming book event featuring Mark Engler and Paul Engler's new book, This is an Uprising. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Jillian Thomas, author of the new book, Because of Sex. She talks about the long and curious history of sex discrimination at the Supreme Court and at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. But first, the news. Trump International Hotel in Las Vegas is at the center of the action in the country's premier leisure and gaming destination. But its big claim to fame these days is one Donald J. Trump, tycoon-turned-GOP frontrunner for the presidential race. But now his hotel's workers are trying to trip him up on the campaign trail by pressing him to recognize their democratically elected union. Even though they've already cast their ballot to unionize their workplace, with the majority of the roughly 520-member bargaining unit voting to unionize last December, they still can't seal the deal because their boss refuses to recognize the results of their democratic election. And that effort has been further gridlocked in litigation at the National Labor Relations Board over claims of unfair labor practices. The company keeps fighting charges of engaging in union suppression, actively seeking to deter the union through coercion, intimidation of campaign workers, aggressively interrogating workers during their legally protected organizing activities, and even causing the dismissal of some employees who are known to be advocating for the union. The workers are still fighting back. Since we last reported on the campaign back in December, and now that they've won their union vote, Unite Here activists have since been following Trump on the campaign trail to his headquarters in New York City, uh, most recently to his campaign stops in Chicago and New Orleans. And yet the master negotiator seems to be rebuffing them at every turn, even as his legal team is hard at work trying to thwart the union through litigation. So while the big boss seems oddly reticent when it comes to meeting with his own workers face-to-face and addressing this glaring unfinished business, there's another Trump hotel in Toronto that recently voted to unionize, and they recently got their contract. So it doesn't seem clear at all what the bottleneck is in Las Vegas. Suffice it to say, all the workers are seeking is decent pay and job security. They're currently making about $3 less than their unionized counterparts in Las Vegas. If the workers in Toronto are good enough to negotiate a fair contract, why shouldn't his workers get the same treatment right here in the good old U.S. of A.? Unite Here activists said last week ahead of his now infamously aborted Chicago rally, Las Vegas workers say to, quote, make America great again, Trump should start by negotiating with them a fair deal like his company made with its Canadian workers. So what say you, Mr. Trump? Our very first episode of Belabored featured Chicago Teachers Union President Karen Lewis talking about their 2012 strike and the battle for the city's public schools. Our episode was titled, We Will Shut Down Your City, after something that Karen Lewis said in that interview. That was way back in 2013, and now Chicago's teachers are looking to make good on that promise, as they find themselves once again in a contract fight with an embattled mayor and a new right-wing governor trying to break unions for good. 
Chicago teacher Sarah Chambers spoke with me about their plans for a citywide day of action on April 1st and why it's going beyond the CTU this time. So depending on the House of Delegates vote on March 23rd, so the House of Delegates will vote on what this action on April 1st looks like. Um, My guess, and just talking to a lot of delegates around the city, is that we will be having a one-day strike on April 1st. And it won't just be the CTU members, you know, it'll also be other unions and community organizations. So right now, as of We have um, 40 community organizations that will be joining us and 15 different unions. And that list just keeps growing. So there's a lot of people that are very upset with Browner's cuts, especially, you know, with this budget not being passed. Right. So there are members from, you know, SEIU Healthcare that are still been bargaining with Browner. And just a lot of members all across the state that that are really suffering from these services being cut. And we'll be, you know, picketing at the schools, possibly shutting down downtown with massive rallies of hopefully our goal is 100,000 people. And what is the significance of April 1st? Well, April 1st, first of all, you know, it's come down now in the past, or these past months, the, the budget hasn't gotten passed and it's, it's really hurt us. So that's part of the reason why April 1st. Mm-hmm. But another reason is when originally Chicago Public Schools wanted to cut our pay by 7% on April 1st, we were going to do the strike, but then they pulled, they postponed that pay cut. Yeah. And we had a decision to make, you know, whether we still wanted to do actions or a strike on April 1st. And we decided, yeah, we need to take the offensive. And, you know, we really need a fight for progressive revenue. I mean, this day is all about progressive revenue, joining together as a city, as a state, and saying, you know, we need progressive income tax. We need a millionaire's tax. We need actual funding. We just yeah. can't keep having cuts because we just keep growing more and more debt. That was Chicago teacher Sarah Chambers, and we will, of course, update you on what happens on April 1st. Or if you are in Chicago, you can update us. The Yale graduate students who help keep the university running day to day have been working for a union longer than many of the faculty have been teaching there. It was way back in the 1990s that the first waves of graduate worker organizing started to percolate in New Haven and at many other private liberal arts college campuses. But a devastating defeat at the National Labor Relations Board, as well as a failed union vote in 2003 at Yale, sort of took the wind out of the sails of the movement. And they've been slowly working to build back ever since. And this past week, they announced their new union, Local 33 with Unite Here. It grew out of the Graduate Students Organizing Committee. They are looking for voluntary uh, agreement to a neutral election process. Um, They're still pressuring the Yale administration to agree to that. And they're also moving forward with their agenda. They are looking to sit down and negotiate a fair contract with the Yale administration for graduate workers and researchers in their collective bargaining unit. They had been hedging their bets on securing voluntary recognition from the Yale administration for a while, but it took many protests and much stonewalling by the Yale executives to goad the graduate students organizing committee into forming a full-fledged union and they have now gotten their majority certified. Here's GSO Unite Here Chair Aaron Greenberg talking about the unionization effort and how it's gotten this far. 
So what we did is we submitted our union authorization card to basically every elected official in the state and asked them to count those cards against the bargaining unit that we want to represent, and all of them certified that we represent a clear majority of uh, the graduate teachers and researchers at Yale. We are not going to wait for Yale to give us an election to act like and be the union that we are. And I think a lot of the issues that we are fighting about, whether it's access to child care, adequate mental health care, race and gender equity, security of, of pay, these are issues that are not going to wait for us to have a union. These are really pressing for our members, and we're ready to fight on them, we're ready to negotiate, and we're ready for our election. So I think last week was a very um, powerful and really exciting demonstration that uh, we're ready. But alas, the big battle may lie far outside of New Haven in Washington, D.C., where Columbia and New School graduate workers are heading in the coming weeks for a potentially groundbreaking appeal to get the National Labor Relations Board to overturn the precedent that had invalidated collective bargaining rights for graduate workers at private campuses. Universities across the country will be obligated to recognize the collective bargaining rights of their students, even on private campuses. The collective bargaining rights will no longer be a mere matter of discretion on the part of the university administrators, but rather an entitlement for the workers whose labor gives the university its prestige and power every day, but yet is seldom recognized. Once upon a time, not all that long ago, when a state voted to require employers to provide paid sick days for their employees, it was a cause for massive celebration. Articles would run everywhere detailing just how this happened. Now that we've got a whole whopping five states with paid sick leave laws, the media reacts with a yawn. But for the workers of Vermont, which just became the fifth state to pass such a law, the story remains a big deal. Vermont, of course, has a deserved reputation for progressivism, but that doesn't mean that the workers didn't have to fight to get paid sick days through. Organizing across the state was carried out by a coalition of workers groups, unions, good government groups, community organizations, interfaith groups, and feminist groups. Supportive businesses also joined the fight. Vermont's bill is pretty good. It even includes small businesses with five or fewer employees, though those get an extra year to implement a plan. Over the first two years of the bill, 2017 and 2018, the workers will get up to three days or 24 hours of paid sick time. After that, it goes up to 40 hours or five days of paid sick time. And of course, since 2006, four other states, California, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Oregon, and 24 municipalities have introduced paid sick days, and it continues to spread across the country, as Ellen Bravo recently reminded us. The opposition that was once so intense, the three-year battle in New York City for paid sick days, I will never forget. Uh, but now they, the opposition is losing ground, and workers have plenty to congratulate themselves on. So congratulations, Vermont. This week, our guest takes us through the ins and outs of the history of just one phrase and just one law, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits, among other things, discrimination because of sex. Jillian Thomas is a senior staff attorney with the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, and she has spent her career fighting just that kind of discrimination. And her new book, Because of Sex, One Law, Ten Cases in 50 Years That Changed American Women's Lives at Work, takes us through the ways the Supreme Court's rulings on that little phrase have shaped the experiences of millions of working people. And as you'll learn, not all of them are even women. 
The introduction to your book gives us the very little known, I certainly was not aware of the history of how Title VII of the Civil Rights Act came to include sex discrimination. Can you tell our readers about that and about how that beginning led to this particular prescription shaping rulings on the subject? Sure. Well, Representative Howard Smith from Virginia was virulently opposed to the Civil Rights Act in its entirety, not just Title VII. But he also had a long, lesser-known history as uh, an advocate for the National Women's Party, led by Alice Paul, which had been advocating for years since the 19th Amendment was finally enacted to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. And even though Howard Smith was uh, a segregationist, he did also support the Equal Rights Amendment. And so he was rallied by the ERA supporters, possibly not for such benevolent reasons, concerns that if there was a race discrimination statute or a statute protecting uh, African Americans from race discrimination in employment, that um, black women would somehow end up with more rights than white women if there weren't the addition of sex as a protected category. Um, That's one theory. Others think that he was trying to kill the bill. That certainly has been a story that circulated for many years that he thought, well, people might vote now for freedom for African Americans or equality for African Americans after seeing Bull Connor in Birmingham. But um, certainly equal rights for women on the job is something ridiculous that they would never vote for. So it'll kill the bill. It'll be a poison pill. In any event, Smith created a lot of mystery about his own intentions, frankly, for years and years, telling Martha Griffiths, a congresswoman from Michigan many years later who supported the addition of sex, that he had done it as a joke. So who knows what his motivations were. In any event, he offered a floor amendment uh, adding sex. There was a good deal of jovial joking about what a silly idea this was, but eventually it did pass with the impassioned support of people like Martha Griffiths from Michigan and the 12 other women who were in the House at that point, and it was passed by a voice vote and became part of Title VII, but all it prohibited was discrimination because of sex. There had been no hearings, there had been no um, lead up to this vote that really specified what was supposed to be prohibited. So it was either an, an accident of history or history calling this guy's bluff, but either way, we sort of got stuck with this um, strange thing that's had so much history develop outside of it. So from that one kind of uh, fluke constitutional development, can you show how it marked a departure in the way the law contemplated fairness on the basis of uh, sex and sex discrimination compared to previous legislation regarding women's rights at work? In the late 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, there, as industrialization occurred and workers' advocates were attempting to enact protections for workers, things like minimum wage, things like uh, maximum hours, things like limiting um, uh, you know, the hazards on the job, making jobs safer, and so forth. The Supreme Court proved itself inhospitable to doing that, at least insofar as male workers were concerned. Um, And it wasn't until the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act and other legislation that protected workers in a broader way, until that time, there were really few protections in place. And so a group of women's advocates were at the very least able to uh, advocate for protections at the state level. So these were laws that limited how long women could work, whether they could work night hours, and so forth. Now, that, of course, had the ancillary effect of making women 
second-class citizens. It made them ineligible for certain kinds of, quote-unquote, dirty jobs, jobs with supervisory authority, jobs that required overtime and, of course, came with higher wages. So it was a double-edged sword, but among the most, if not vocal opponents, skeptical or ambivalent um, voices when Title VII was amended to make uh, women's participation in the labor force a national matter as opposed to a state matter. You had people like Frances Perkins from the Department of Labor and Esther Peterson at the Department of Labor. In my book, I mention uh, an anecdote from uh, Karen Klaus, who was in the Labor Department as a young lawyer when Title VII was enacted, and she remembers Esther Peterson saying to her in alarm, you know, Esther Peterson had been at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Like, she knew what happened when you didn't have any regulation of the workplace for its most vulnerable. And Karen Klaus told me about Esther Peterson lamenting to her, all of our work is going to be undone. And so it's an interesting tension that, of course, those kinds of laws did make women seem like mothers first and workers second. And that certainly was a view that the Supreme Court had in its prior few rulings about women and work endorsed. Um, preventing them from working longer shifts, um, preventing them from holding jobs as as bartenders unless their husband or father owned the bar, preventing them from practicing law. So um, Title VII kind of was given birth to, (laughs) no pun intended, into this world that was divided into men's jobs and women's jobs, and women were second-class citizens in the workplace. One of the most fascinating chapters I thought in, in your book was the one on the California Federal, the, the pregnancy discrimination case, where there was this big split between feminist groups that, you know, in some ways seems to echo splits we're still having. You write about the way that the, the sort of equality feminism that was pushing for things like Title VII and the, the women who were representing sort of everyday women who were like, well, I just got fired because I was pregnant and I need some relief now. Well, and it's not only echoed in the present day, it's echoed in the uh, tension I just mentioned to you that preceded Title VII. So you had some people who worked up close and personal in the labor organizing movement who saw what, you know, an unregulated workplace did to women. And you had others who were probably a little more upper class thinking about feminism from a bit more of an academic standpoint, if not a racially biased one. So this tension between formal equality and what equality means on the ground every day has been with us for a long time. So in in CalFed, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act was passed in 1978 after a widely derided uh, 1976 Supreme Court decision that refused to find that pregnancy discrimination was categorically sex discrimination. The PDA made that clear. Then, um, sort of at the same time that the PDA was working its way through Congress, you had states taking action to protect the rights of pregnant workers. And of course, pregnancy in the 60s and 70s was an automatic pink slip um, in many places. And the courts had not been great about protecting women from that. And not only was it a reason that women got fired, but they needed to take leave. And then if they hadn't been fired as of the time they went out on leave, then they didn't have any job protected leave. So California moved to enact greater protections for pregnant workers than other workers at the time Um, enjoyed and guaranteed them in this particular state law four months of job-protected leave. It wasn't paid. It was the bare minimum, but you you were going to get your, your same job or an equivalent job back. Well, Lillian Garland was working at a bank. She went out for about three months of leave. Maybe she was up to her four months, and she tried to come back to work, and she was told there wasn't anything for her. So she went to the state anti-discrimination 
agency and filed a charge and they brought a lawsuit on her behalf. So the bank, instead of fighting the lawsuit just on its merits, decided to fight the law. And they brought a lawsuit in federal court saying that this requirement that they treat pregnant women better than they treat other people with temporary disabilities who had to be out for a period of time. They said that that violated Title VII itself because they were having to favor women over men who might have a disability that took them out of work. And much to the agency's uh, chagrin, many of the most prominent women's organizations at the time that were still relatively new, sided with the bank, or at least not with the bank specifically that women should be fired during pregnancy, but that the law should be equalized, that everybody should have an opportunity to have protected time out of the office if they need it for medical reasons. And as you indicated with your question, the reason was they feared that singling out pregnancy for special treatment was a throwback that was a slippery slope back to making women too delicate to work long hours and too delicate to lift heavy loads and work overtime and so forth. So there was a feminist movement on the ground representing Lillian Garland, mostly based out of the West Coast in San Francisco, especially um, the Legal Aid Society and Employment Law Center in San Francisco, which is a venerable organization still around, versus the, you know, quote-unquote, East Coast feminist organizations, National Organization for Women, and uh, now National Organization for Women Legal Defense Fund, now LDF, and other organizations saying, no, we should be pushing for a total overall equal treatment. And when the case went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court sided with the West Coasters. Um, so what does that make it, like Biggie or Tupac? <laughs> which is which? Uh, that makes it, it Tupac. Definitely. Thank you. Um, and um, the Supreme Court sided with the West Coasters saying, look, this law is not like those old laws, uh, this state law. It's not intended to keep women down. It's not intended to take away their opportunities. It's intended to maximize their opportunity to participate in the workforce and save their jobs. Funny yeah. how these sort of caretaking issues come up again and again and again. One of the things also that um, struck me again reading the book is is how many times the definition under the law is that like people were supposed to be treated as individuals, like the the um, pension case, right? That you're not you were not allowed to make women pay more for their pensions because women as a whole lived longer because the law says you're supposed to treat them as an individual, not as somebody who has this combined characteristics of this group. And we talk a lot about how civil rights law is individualized, right? And it, it protects individual rights rather than the collective rights of an earlier generation. Um, so I'm wondering what you think some of the pitfalls of that strategy have been for women and people of color and everybody else who faces discrimination. And yeah, I'm wondering about the, the tensions between a strategy that essentially sends these women out to sort of fight these 10-year-long legal battles by themselves versus what was before, you know, you had the right to organize. I picked the cases that were going to be in the book um, based on uh, objective characteristics about sort of what kind of impact they had had and how much they shaped my practice uh, as an employment discrimination lawyer. And when I got into them, I was surprised to discover how few had come out of any sort of collective action. Mm -hmm. And there are only two cases in the book um, that came out of union organizing. And um, they were quicker <laughs> um, than the individual cases. And I think that um, the extent to which 
individuals are left to fend for themselves is a discouraging development. I think it's one that the Supreme Court has enabled, such as through decisions with Walmart, uh, making class actions and collective actions more difficult, you know, refusing to um, take as seriously as it once did, for instance, in the Price Waterhouse case um, and also in the Harris v. Forklift case, where it really um, social science played a big role, in fact, in Walmart, um, was very um, derisive about use of social science or any sort of acknowledgement that there is some sort of group think um, that keeps yeah. women in subordinate roles. So I think that that's um, definitely a disturbing trend. We see it in our work, um, that it takes such bravery at this point for individuals to come forward, and they're negotiating pretty much on their own on a day-to-day basis at, at jobs. And also, I mean, it's, it's, I, I've represented a lot of women who are in jobs like uh, construction and police forces and, and uh, you know, other law enforcement firefighters, and sometimes the unions are not their friend either. Um, so the mechanisms that are supposed to be there for collective action aren't working either. You talk a lot about um, influential litigation, but I'm, I'm also thinking, how does the language of the courts um, and of these precedents um, sort of trickle down into the way we talk about the law in our everyday lives, especially when we talk about what does equality for women mean on a day-to-day basis, or when you're defending yourself in a grievance proceeding or something on a smaller scale that doesn't you know, make it all the way to the court. We were talking about this tension between individual and group rights. I mean, um, in the way we talk about feminism and feminism as a movement, um, we're talking a lot about things like intersectionality between race and class and gender. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how um, the language of movements um, shows the effect of, of these court decisions and how that has led to maybe some tensions in the way movements are organized. I think that the courts are not very in touch with what regular people's lives are like. And as I talk about in the epilogue, there are a couple of cases in the employment context, and I am an employment lawyer, so that's my expertise, and there are a couple of cases that have come down from the court recently where we've gotten these incredibly vociferous dissents from um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying to her colleagues, you have no idea how an actual workplace works. I mean, just to give you an example, there was a decision in the 2013 term uh, involving who is a supervisor for purposes of assigning liability for under sexual harassment, okay, sexual harassment prong of, of Title VII. And the court ruled, a 5-4 majority, I'm sure you can guess who was in which, mm-hmm. the only person who qualifies as a supervisor is someone who's able to hire and fire or demote you, do take some tangible action. We all know that that's not how the workforce works. You have people in a Walmart having a, you know, a tag slapped on them, um, being called a manager, and they're given lots of authority over people, but they can't really hire and fire. They're just able to make people's lives really, really miserable. So I think courts in general are... Um, it's a battle to make them understand what the reality of people's lives is every day. And that's one reason I really enjoy trial work is because it's telling a story and trying to really make a jury or a judge um, or an administrative agency understand what this person's life is like. That said, um, intersectionality, um, except when it comes to uh, trans rights, which incredibly, at least in the workplace, obviously public accommodations, totally different matter. But in the workplace, um, the Price Waterhouse case in the book has actually proved quite a boon, and courts do seem to, and the EEOC 
do seem to be understanding that not, not everybody conforms to a binary, not everybody conforms to a particular way of looking or acting uh, in accordance with you know what, what stereotypes of gender are. But when it comes to intersectionality in terms of race and gender, I mean, women of color are in a bad way, and they have a you know they have a legal theory at their at their disposal called sex plus, meaning you know if in one particular workplace white women are treated well, but the women of color are all paid less, they're not disqualified from bringing an action just because women, you know, as a whole on average are paid okay. So in theory, they have that theory accessible to them, but getting courts to understand that bias is is happening in these ever more kind of subtle, nuanced, you know, different ways, you know, as race and gender and gender identity all get kind of mixed up in our workplaces. Yeah. And you have employers who are who are talking the talk in part because the Supreme Court has given them a way to avoid liability if they, at least in sexual harassment cases, where they can prove that they had a complaint procedure. So you end up having a lot of employers who say, you know, sign this form that you've had some sexual harassment training, but it's not doing anything to actually educate workers about how power plays out, how sexuality, you know, asserts itself as power. That is not really being addressed. I was wondering, as somebody who has litigated a bunch of these kind of employment discrimination cases, you can talk a little bit more about the realities of filing a, a Title VII complaint if you are a person who is facing discrimination of various types at your job. Because I think so many people don't even really understand how this process works, let alone like the realities of facing a court. Yeah. Well, so often individuals don't even get to a court. Which can be a good thing. I mean, I'm not, um, you know, litigation is not a fun process, so I, I wouldn't necessarily wish it on anybody. But the, the mechanics are that if you want to file a lawsuit under Title VII, which prohibits discrimination on race, national origin, color, religion, and sex, uh, or under the ADA or under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, ADEA, you have to first go to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is a federal agency, has offices all over the place, including right outside this office. And you have to file what's called a charge of discrimination. And you don't need a lawyer to do that, so that's good. But the EEOC is horribly overstressed. It went through years of um, administrations that did not fund it. I worked there myself, and there was a hiring freeze for quite some time, and we also were furloughed for periods of time as well. So all of the investigators are completely overstressed, as are the attorneys. But in any event, you file a, a charge of discrimination, and then the agency undertakes an investigation, and they ask the employer to submit documents that might show you know, performance evaluations or documents that might show aggregate pay numbers or aggregate hiring numbers. Um, and then they interview witnesses, and they interview the charging party, and they interview the managers um, in charge of the employer. At least that's what's supposed to happen in the investigation. Because of the workload, um, it's, I mean, it's like Dr. Seuss, uh, you know, towering, wavering piles of, of files that, that some of these folks are, are contending with. But if the investigation happens, then it's supposed to end in a finding of either probable cause or no probable cause. If they find probable cause, then they try to settle the case. Um, if settlement's um, effective and successful, terrific. If not, then the EEOC decides whether to file a lawsuit in its own name on behalf of the individual. So that's the way it's supposed to work. Um, because the agency is so strapped, um, and I did see this up close, there are 
lots and lots of well-meaning people who go into this into this agency. Um, the way it ends up working out is that there might be months that go by without an investigation happening or just very preliminary steps in an investigation. So a charging party can request um, that the file be closed and then he or she can then go to court. But you have to go to the EEOC first um, and and check that box that you've tried at least to resolve it without litigation. So I have had clients who have had um, charges that have been pending for, you know, years there. And the reason that an, a lawyer might not, on behalf of a client, um, just end the investigation and go, go to court is that these kinds of cases are incredibly labor and intensive and extremely expensive. Um, all of the depositions you have to take, all of the experts you need to hire and so forth. And so if you have an agency that's willing to do this investigation and eventually make a finding in your client's favor and even settle the case, then that's preferable. Um, and litigation is so incredibly unpleasant. Um, d- depositions especially can be really, really brutal. Um, when I was at the EEOC, I had a case where I was representing a bunch of, um, I and my colleagues were representing a, a bunch of women who had been harassed in a fast food chain. And they all were, you know, 16, 17, 18, 18 years old when this happened to them. And it was horrible. I mean, some were, one woman was raped, several were sexually assaulted, it had, you know, men were exposing themselves to them. It was, it was absolutely brutal to think that this is going on on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And these women were met with such disbelief by the opposing counsel. They were met with such classism and racism and sexism from dis, just and disdain. I really had never seen anything quite like it up close. And so that's why an agency like the EEOC, when it's working well, and is let it going to litigation for these folks instead of you know requiring them to get their own lawyer, that is you know really important that they have someone moving forward for them. But the the process of litigation is very unpleasant for just about anybody, even if you win. How old were the women when that case was resolved? They were in their twenties and early thirties. No longer working at the fast food. No, no. <laughs> it was a finding in their favor at least. Uh, no, the well, what had happened was there had been a uh, finding in their favor way, way back in the agency uh, when it was a charge that was pending, and then the litigation had dragged on for so many years. Um, it had dragged on for almost twelve or thirteen years, I think. So we did get a settlement for them that was multi millions, but um, you know, you, we had lost people from the case by that point. It was, you know, litigation, especially when you're doing even when you have the EEOC representing lots and lots of people, it just takes a long time. It's a blunt in- instrument. Yeah. Yeah. If you just look at the, the way the outcomes have worked out, um, sex discrimination cases have advanced in a way that um, race-related cases in some ways have, have not in terms of just um, seeing the number of cases that have been resolved. And I was wondering if you could like address like how does the EEOC divide up race-based civil rights discrimination cases versus gender-based ones? I really don't know what the current statistics show, and those are all publicly available on their website. I mean, it's and there, there are sort of two phases, just to be clear, about the EEOC's um, activity and the st- ways of reading the statistics. There are the charges that come through and are investigated and then settled at that the pre-litigation stage, and then there are the charges that are not settled that the EEOC tries to litigate or does litigate. And 
I frankly don't know what the statistics show now about that. I can tell you that when a case comes in the door, there's absolutely no tracking of, um, you know, that there's this team over here that gets the race cases and this team over here that gets the gender cases. They all come in, and if they are designated as a litigation priority, then they, you know, they're designated as a litigation priority. The, and the agency puts out um, and has put out recently a strategic enforcement plan where it identifies priorities, and that those are the things that are supposed to gain you know, direct how, um, you know, what the litigation priorities are. And I mean, during the time that I was working there in the current strategic enforcement plan, um, you know, targeting industries that um, abuse low-wage workers, targeting industries that are historically male-dominated, um, which are disproportionately industries in which women of color are working, um, uh, and um, targeting, um, you know, continuing um, class-wide systemic forms of race inequality. M- my understanding is that those are um, top priorities, you know, listed in their strategic enforcement plan. The agency has litigated some incredible class-wide victories as well, especially as the class action rules have gotten weaker. And also, I mean, the agency has taken, I really can't applaud it enough, has taken a really leading role in um, LGBT rights. And you probably are aware that just a week or so ago, they filed their first two sexual orientation cases saying that sexual orientation discrimination is discrimination because of sex, which is not um, widely, um, I happen to believe it's true under the history of the law and the jurisprudence of the law, but it's not widely yet adopted in the courts. And so it's a real vanguard position of the agency. And certainly with respect to trans workers, too. How would you say the issue of sex discrimination is playing out in the legal arena when we're talking about um, a globalized economy and also an economy in which um, corporations and employers are no longer as constrained by domestic laws and regulations and also just the way that working women in this country are sort of Um, being placed in a position where they're essentially forced to compete in a lot of ways with women in a different part of the world who are living and working in vastly different environments along vastly different legal standards. I guess going forward, how should we, um, as people who care about civil rights in this country under Title VII, how should we globalize that for a world in which not everyone thinks or knows about Title VII or doesn't apply in the vast majority of cases? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is that as much as, you know, in this book, I hope to celebrate Title VII and what's it, what it's accomplished in terms of breaking down divisions between men's and women's work and, um, you know, making it possible for all sorts of um, fields to be open to women um, and to make it possible for women to work while they have children or if they don't have children, um, make a multiplicity of identities sort of welcome in the workplace. It's a law that has limits. And, um, you know, discrimination is really, really hard to prove. And the law only covers um, workplaces with 15 people in them. So a lot of the kinds of abuses, I think, that are stemming from a globalized economy are the kinds of things that are covered by Fair Labor Standards Act um, and uh, have a lot to do with um, the, you know, lack of access to organizing, the more um, targeted immigration policy of our government at this point. So I think you're seeing a, a much starker stratification of the workplace. 
very, very low wage, marginalized workers, you know, like the expose that was in the Times about, you know, salon workers, but that's just the tip of the iceberg, who are supporting, you know, these these globalized corporate corporate interests. And discrimination is sort of the least of their problems. It's just getting <laughs> paid, you know, minimum wage. It's not working 15-hour days. And um, there are language barriers and cultural barriers and, um it's a huge problem and requires a lot more than just what one law can provide. Yeah, yeah. And I was also thinking that, I mean, in some of my reporting on um, the way immigration law intersects with um, gender discrimination, right? I mean, um, when you're deciding who gets a visa or how you're hiring from, you know, uh, guest workers being imported from overseas, I mean, you know, all sorts of discriminations can kick in and um, no one's really applying Title VII principles in, in those arenas. There are weird stereotypes in, in the guest worker program. Yeah, the, I mean the, the way... The places that people get brought in from is, right. is just a whole batch of weird gender and race stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of my prior jobs, we were very lucky to be able to expand Title VII to cover American job um, placement you know, agents, I guess you would call them, who go into foreign countries like Mexico or into Central America and, um, you know, make all sorts of promises about what kind of jobs are going to be available to them and then track, you know, women into into, um, jobs that are more dangerous or lower paid or whatever. You know, that is one way in which the law has worked. Also, um, the work that's been done around protecting agricultural workers, especially in the area of sexual harassment, has been tremendous. And I'm, you're probably aware that in California became the first state within the last year to require lots of different kinds of training of all the different layers of management and um, agents who go out and solicit the workforce and then oversee the workforce to be familiar actually with what the protections of the law are. I mean, it's a huge, it's an absolutely enormous problem, especially when you have language barriers, especially when you have people who might not be here legally. And so telling them to go to the government with their legal problems is is certainly a hard sell. But one thing I'm proud of when I was at the EEOC, and, and it continues, is that they have a policy of not, they take cases without any consideration of, of immigration status. And they do a lot of litigation to keep people, you know, confidential and never have to disclose who they are. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully they just have to remain in the country long enough <laughs> to see the case get resolved. Yeah, precisely. Um, hard to do when your boss is the one who's sponsoring your <laughs> legal that is definitely true in this country. Since your your book is roughly in chronological order, would you say um, it is okay? Now that you sort of looked at the arc of of um, you know workplace discrimination law under Title VII, um, I, I think when you look at today's context and the debates are having around sexual discrimination in the workplace, um, you noted in both your your introduction and your um, and your epilogue that. Um, you know, we still are facing gender pay gaps. We're still facing issues with um, equal pay for equal work. And, uh, you know, we still see uh, rampant de jure discrimination um, of women through um, more subtle forms of workplace culture. So how would you assess the progress? And where do you think the next big debate around discrimination is going to be in terms of the types of uh, gender issues that we're looking at today? There's a lot of reason to be discouraged about where we are. I, I mean, I'm an employment lawyer. I get calls every day that are discouraging about what's going on. So um, there's a lot of reason to feel pessimistic about these entrenched problems. The thing that these cases did was, number one, 
bring them into the conversation, into the consciousness, and give us a, a, a vocabulary. I mean, sexual harassment, sexual stereotyping. These are phrases that none of us, or at least very few of us, understood 50 years ago um, when it was a joke to try to prevent discrimination against women. So there's a vocabulary and there's a legal architecture. And I'm not saying it's sufficient, but it's vastly eons away from where we started, um, where want ads were separated by, you know, help wanted men and help wanted women. So that architecture and those frameworks are with us and are expanding and are becoming more elastic, such as with the um, expansion to encompass LGBT um, discrimination, for instance. I think in addition to the the issues you've identified where race, class, and immigration status, and um, English proficiency, and globalization all intersect are really, really thorny and probably beyond the reach of just one law. Well, as I said, they are beyond the reach of just one law to resolve. And I think those solutions to those problems are going to take um, multiple stakeholders and multiple legal frameworks and policy frameworks and law enforcement frameworks to address. If we're talking about where are we going forward with um, anti-discrimination law, in addition to the LGBT front, which I think is very exciting and very positive, um, I think that pregnancy and motherhood discrimination are um, among the greatest barriers to um, equal pay and uh, women's advancement and entry into historically closed jobs. The kind of bias that you saw in like a Johnson Controls, for instance, um, where, uh, you know, women are, are being kept out of jobs that are considered too dangerous for them because they might possibly become pregnant and God forbid they might possibly have an abortion if they <laughs> decided that it was too dangerous to continue the pregnancy. I mean, five years ago, I had a client who was a cop who was removed from active duty. It happens all the time that pregnancy and, and motherhood are seen as reasons to not advance women, to not hire them, and to not advance them, and to not pay them the same, to not give them equal opportunity. And men face precisely the opposite. Fatherhood increases their marketability, increases their pay. So unless you uh, want to take paternity leave, in which case the, 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 then it gets then you're a wuss. Yeah, then you're <laughs> Total a wuss wimp. and a and a wimp, and then you also get a target on your back. Absolutely, and I think frankly, it's it is up to a lot of men taking those hits for the team. Frankly, and um, uh, and destigmatizing the act of parenting in this country before employers are going to see it as not something that just is a reason not to hire women. You heard it, all of our male, male listeners. It is your job for feminism to take family leave. <laughs> take one for the team, guys. <laughs> it's, I, I think that sounds like a win-win, right? <laughs> it's your job to take your family leave, and uh, you'll, you'll score one for all of us. Yeah. The only problem is that, you know, all of these companies are announcing all these parental leave policies where the paternity leave is woefully short right. and um, you know the women still get you know 20 weeks or six months or up to a year or fathers demand your leave demand your equal equal leave for equal parenting and there have been men who have brought you know have brought cases precisely because they have been stigmatized in this way and they've won. I mean, Josh yeah. Loves at CNN, you know, got a huge settlement when he made a fuss and he also got a book deal. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something that a lot of women don't get when yeah. they file. <laughs> Good point. Yeah.
And that was Jillian Thomas talking about her new book, Because of Sex. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now for ARG, the part of the show where we talk about the pieces that we read and liked and wish we had written but did not. So my pick for ARG this week is called Turmoil Behind the Scenes at a Nationally Lauded High School from NPR Ed by Anya Kamenetz. Over the years, we've seen think tanks, tech moguls, and politicians of every ideological stripe come up with some plan to overhaul the public education system, and often it's done with good intentions about remedying inequality writ large, with the promise that some right magical formula of funding and program innovation and political spin can turn our schools into microcosms of the societies we wish we could become. But the NPR investigation on P-TECH shows that this is a lot easier said than done. Kamenetz reports that at the school, which is a Brooklyn-based public school that has a lot of, let's say, technical assistance from companies like IBM, it was actually lauded by Obama in a State of the Union address a few years back, and it's been nationally celebrated as a model of high school education for the 21st century. It's a sort of mini tech hub that's designed to give high school students a head start on a college education in a math or science-related field. So as Cummins reports, P-Tech completely overhauled the school-to-career pipeline with a six-year program that blended the traditional four years of high school with two free years of community college, plus IBM internships and mentorships. Most of the students are from low-income families, African-American or Hispanic, and a majority are boys. So it turns out that uh, the hopes were a little too high to start with. An investigation of the actual academic outcomes of the school showed that there was a lot of turmoil. Um, A lot of the students ended up failing. The school missed a lot of the critical benchmarks that it had promised to achieve. And overall, it demonstrated the real difficulty in finding really that magical bullet, especially when your bullet comes festooned with all these visions of the new digital economy and how it's going to save everyone. But that's not really the most dangerous part. Um, The troubling aspect of this is that in typical Silicon Valley fashion, P-Tech sort of became a franchise and there was an experimental school bubble where you had dozens of P-Techs, clone P-Techs, mushrooming across the country all sort of uh, building these public-private partnerships with huge corporations like Con Edison and Verizon, and they were all sponsoring their own schools designed to provide some kind of feeder for high school genius kids into the rank-and-file workforce of the new economy. So it looks like the dramatic vision got ahead of the people who are behind the school, as good as their intentions might have seemed. And ultimately, it's the kids who end up not making the grade that are hurt the most by these overinflated expectations. After all, the tech companies that are behind this miracle school franchise, IBM, Verizon, Con Edison, um, this is a relatively low-risk investment on their part. It, they got some corporate do-gooder points, and um, you know they still come out banking on the brand prestige that comes from doing something good for public education. But what did the kids come out with in the end? 
Really, my choice for ARG this week is the art that goes along with Nick Pinto's piece in The Village Voice. Cuomo bears fangs at CUNY, puts final nail in the coffin of his own progressivism. Yes, Andrew Cuomo, that recent convert to the cause of $15 an hour and family leave, bearing fangs at us all. But the piece is pretty good, too, as Nick Pinto pulls no punches against our very own Governor Cuomo, or as Nick describes him, quote, Andrew Cuomo, the archetypal politician, fickle, convictionless, his soul shriveled to a crushing singularity from which only ego can escape, has of late been feeling the political winds blowing left-wise and has grudgingly drifted accordingly. While Cuomo is masquerading these days as a friend of the working class, he's been busy gutting one of the nation's premier educational institutions for that working class, the City University of New York. We've talked on this podcast before about the battle for CUNY, where the faculty union remains without a contract after something like four or five years, you know, no big deal. And the students, of course, are facing ever-increasing tuition. And as Nick points out in this piece, it is all because Cuomo feels slighted or something that he's going to cut massive, massive amounts of money out of the budget. You see, the faculty union at CUNY endorsed Zephyr Teachout when she ran against Cuomo for governor in 2014, and taking a chunk out of the city system is also an effective swipe at New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, who, of course, Cuomo hates. And there's the little matter of Cuomo getting a late invitation to a press conference that involved a hospital project partnership between the University and Memorial Sloan Kettering. I wish I was kidding. As Nick writes, quote, Bringing down vengeance on a population of hopeful young innocents due to a late party invitation may sound more like the behavior of a fairy tale homunculus than a human adult, but Cuomo's fragility in this regard is the stuff of legend. Sometimes it just seems that Cuomo can't restrain himself from punching someone who doesn't deserve it. Doing the right thing on wages just seems to hurt him somehow. But of course, it's also an effective game of divide and conquer, as Nick writes, quote, In an especially cynical maneuver, Cuomo has just suggested that some of the money the state saved with his plan could go toward covering retroactive raises owed to CUNY faculty, effectively pitting the obligation to pay educators what they deserve against adequate funding for the schools where they work. For Cuomo, this not only has the happy side effect of forcing a wedge between CUNY students and the union that is one of their most effective advocates, but it also backs de Blasio into a corner. If, as seems hardly unlikely, de Blasio ultimately trades away state funding for retroactive raises in favor of restoring basic funding to CUNY, Cuomo can tell teachers that he wanted to pay them, but de Blasio got in his way. So, think of all of this when you hear about just how progressive an ally Andrew Cuomo has become for working people. That is all we have for today, but as always, you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org if you have faced discrimination on the job, if you're going to shut down your city, Chicago or otherwise, if you have or need or want paid sick days, if your boss is Donald Trump or anyone else currently running for major office. Also, if you will be in the New York area on April 6th, you can join us for a very, very special Belabored Live to mark our 100th episode and three years of Belabored. We will be at 61 Local in Brooklyn with guest Mark Engler, who is co-author of the new book This is an Uprising and a member of the editorial board here at Descent. Bring your questions and come ready to toast 100 more episodes of Class Struggle. Thanks, and since our schedule is slightly changing here, we will see you in three weeks, not two. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>